Hey there, this is Brian Zond. We'll get to the sermon in a moment, but I want to talk for just a second about the water to wine gathering that's coming up June 11, 12, 13 here in St. Joseph, Missouri. Uh, This is a gathering for people who... We could say it this way. They sense the falseness prevailing in Americanized Christianity, and they're looking for something better. We call it water to wine because that's kind of the journey for a lot of people. You move beyond a watered-down, weak Christian faith, and you begin to discover something more rich, more robust, more intoxicating, the kind of faith that Jesus wants us to have. And so I've invited a lot of my close friends to come and be presenters. It's going to be fantastic. And you can register now at watertowinegathering.com. Don't go to watertowine.com. That'll just get you wine. You got to go to watertowinegathering.com. It has all the information, what the workshops are and who's presenting and how you can register. But go ahead and do that because we would love to spend a few days with you right here in St. Joseph, Missouri for Water to Wine Gathering 2020. Well, this is the first Sunday in Lent. And the first Sunday in Lent, the gospel reading, as we've just heard, is always the wilderness temptation of Jesus. That's where the 40 days of fasting something Uh, comes from. It comes from that. It comes from Jesus began his ministry with 40 days of fasting. And so as we are preparing for Easter, we have 40 days of fasting something plus six Sundays where we don't fast. So it's on Ash Wednesday, we're 46 days away from Easter. Now we're in the fifth day of Lent. So I guess we're like, you know, 41, 42 days away from uh, Easter. Um, and so the wilderness temptation, it's a fascinating story that, that Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist. He's going to begin his ministry, but before he begins his ministry, he has 40 days of reflection, of prayer. We're not told what he's praying about, but I think we know he's getting ready to launch his ministry. His ministry will be to announce And to enact the coming of the kingdom of God. But how does he go about it? So he's praying and he's fasting in the Judean wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And then we're told the devil came to him. The devil came to him. How did the devil come to Jesus? The devil came, you know, not not with, as we say, not with, with a pitchfork and a forked tail. And horns and a widow's peak like Eddie Munster. No, no, he came the same way the devil comes to you and me, disguised as our own thoughts. And what we call temptations were actually three good ideas at first glance. The ideas are feed everyone, persuade everyone, liberate everyone. That's what lurks behind turn the stones to bread. Jesus said, well, I could just base my whole ministry on feeding people. But there's a devil that lurks there because what's really going on there is feed everyone and forget about God. That's why the answer is people can't live by bread alone. Yes, Jesus will multiply the loaves and fishes and he will feed people but he will also say eat my flesh and drink my blood see this is the temptation to say we're going to make the kingdom 
of God solely and only about social justice, about loving your neighbor as yourself. But until we are formed properly in worship of God, we are incapable of, in the long term, loving our neighbor as ourselves. So Jesus overcomes that temptation. Second temptation, persuade everybody. You know, just go to Jerusalem, climb up on the pinnacle of the temple, take a flying leap, let the angels come and catch you. Everybody go, whoa, I'm persuaded now. But it's, the, the temptation here is to persuade everyone and eliminate faith or by eliminating faith. Just make faith unnecessary. Either through miracle or science, prove God. God could do that. But the moment God resorts to coercion, are you a free being? No, you're not. As Frederick Buechner says, the room for doubt is the room for me. And so Jesus sees through that and says, no, you shall not tempt you shall not test you shall not put god to the test efforts to prove god are also to tempt god to test god now we're called to live by faith not by some sort of either conclusive evidence by miracle or science third temptation that's the most subtle of all the most insidious of all the temptation well the way it's presented is the, the devil takes jesus up on a high mountain shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and he says you know this is given to me. I'm running this show. And, you know, for just a little bit of worship, I'll turn it all over to you. This is the temptation, because, you know, as you look at the kingdoms of the world, what you see are kingdoms of oppression. And you see all of these oppressed people. And the temptation is for Jesus to focus his ministry on liberating people through the most expedient means at hand, and that is through the power of the sword. That is to become Jesus the conqueror, Jesus the great, to raise a war against Rome and against Caesar and liberate everybody. It sounds great. Liberate everybody. But this is the temptation of the ring of power, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all in the darkness, to bind them. Because if Jesus had said, I will take up the sword to do good, it would have been meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Jesus sees right through it and says, that's the bow down devil. I'm not doing that. I am bringing a new kingdom. And so Jesus overcomes all three temptations by saying it is written, it is written, it is written, because Jesus is the word of God. Amen. So I like that story. I've preached on that a lot. But what I'm interested in today is what happened after Jesus overcame the trilogy of temptations. Matthew 4, verse 11. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. Suddenly angels came and waited on him. Suddenly angels. That's going to be my sermon title today. Suddenly angels. I like that. See what I can do with it. Suddenly angels. There's got to be something there. That's what I thought. I was praying about it this week. I said, I think I should preach a sermon called Suddenly Angels. The story of Jesus in the wilderness is one that involves angels and devils. And stories that involve angels and devils are a powerful motif. They speak to us deeply. Because we all have experienced the reality of angels and devils.
What do I mean by the devil? I don't mean, you know, a guy in a red suit and all that. Because that's not what Jesus faced and that's not what you and I face. And speaking of the devil, I mean something like, though not precisely like this, experiences of evil and pressure toward evil that at times become disturbingly present in our lived experience. We all have these experiences with evil from time to time, and in those moments there's no doubt that the devil is real. I'm talking about experiences where we are in the proximity of evil or evil is enacted upon us or we are feeling pressure to move in the direction of evil. That's when we know the devil is real. These bedeviling experiences with evil and temptation are also more common in the wilderness. Jesus is baptized and then he goes into the wilderness and in the wilderness is where he has a confrontation with the devil. And I mean, part of the ability for Jesus to overcome the devil was to recognize it's the devil. Most of the time, we're not overcome by the devil by going, oh, the devil's tempting me. And I'm going to go with it. No, we don't do that. We don't wreck it. We think it's a good idea. We think it's, well, this is what I, this would be all right. The devil came to Jesus in disguise, of course, as the devil always does, the devil came to Jesus in the wilderness. And by wilderness, I mean, the wilderness is, a, is also a metaphor, too. Jesus was actually in a wilderness, but I mean, it's also a, it's a metaphor for spiritual dryness, a spiritual desert. Anybody ever been through a spiritual desert? I don't know, there's times, you know, when, when, when God feels real and seems real and God seems near, and then there's other times when that's not your experience. That's the wilderness. That's the desert. I mean, have you ever been in a place where you couldn't find God anywhere, but devils were everywhere? So I don't know where God went, but the devil's sure here. I might not believe in God at this moment, but I sure believe in the devil because right here. When we were walking the Camino again last fall, we were in Astorga. And I went into a church and I saw this, I saw this painting. Uh, put that up. There we go. I just had to take a picture of that. You ever had a day like that? That's, uh, I think my caption was, and you think you're having a bad day. Well, that's uh, St. That's Anthony there. St. Anthony was born in the year 251 in one of the cities of Egypt, died in 355. He lived to be 104 years old, so the devils really didn't get the best of him. He lived to be 104. And he's known as the father of monasticism. At age 20, at age 20, he left the city. He, he came from a wealthy background, and he went into the desert, into the wilderness, and for the first 20 years, just lived there as, as a hermit, just praying. And he had all of these terrible experiences. We know a lot about him because a man that actually knew him, Athanasius, very famous church father, knew him and wrote his biography. And it was like a bestseller in the ancient world. For 20 years, he's in the wilderness and he's beset by 
temptations and spiritual struggles and doubts and all sorts of things that he describes like that. That's what he describes it as. I mean, he, he goes into great detail about these devils, although I'm pretty sure that what what Anthony is doing is saying it is like this, not literally that, but that's what it was like when I was dealing with all of that. Sometimes you get in the wilderness and the devils that are in you come out because there's nothing there to distract you and you have to face what lurks within. And, and he was there for 20 years, but then word got out that there was this very holy spiritual man and people started flocking to him and he, his career of being a hermit was over. And he ended up founding probably the first monastery in the history of Christianity and, and uh, became a great church father. He's the, he's the one that said, I no longer fear God, but I love God because perfect love casts out all fear. That's St. Anthony. Um, keep in mind that... Being in a spiritual wilderness filled with howling devils doesn't mean that you've taken a wrong turn or done something wrong. Sometimes you get in a, in a spiritual situation where you're in a desert. God doesn't feel real. Everything's dry. You pray. And it just, you're not feeling it. Remember, when you can't pray, at least say your prayers. It'll help you get through that, time, that period of time. But you're there and, and, and nothing feels real about God, but then the doubt becomes like a monster. Because you're in that place doesn't mean you've taken a wrong turn or done anything wrong. Everyone goes through wilderness places where they have to confront devils. Remember Jesus. Here's what it says, Matthew 4.1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit. Not by the flesh, not by the devil. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I mean, there are, we, there are things we have to face in our life. And we have to overcome them. I think maybe that's the biggest part of spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is not based upon just always having smooth sailing. Spiritual growth happens when you find yourself in a desert filled with howling devils, but you don't give up, you don't quit, you press on, and you come through to the other side. And with new strength and new wisdom, new capacity to help other people. Jesus had to go through it. Anthony had to go through it. You'll have to go through it. But here's the good news. Battles with the devil don't last forever. There's seasons of that. It happens. But they don't last forever. The story begins with Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and the battle occurs, but it ends like this. Then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. I've got another painting for you. This is by Ludovico Caracci. I think he might have been Italian. <laughs> Ludovico Caracci. And uh, he painted this in 1608. It's called, uh, oh, I forgot the title. I think it's like, you know, Christ ministered to in the wilderness by angels. I mean, it's, just, it's what it is. Now, yeah, that's a kind of a cool picture there. First of all, you get Carazzi's idea of a wilderness. There are no deserts in Italy, so that's a wilderness for him. And uh, we got some angels and 
And they're, they're, they're pouring water over Jesus' hands because he's going to finally be able to have his first meal in 40 days. And uh, got some other angels. They've got a, got a little, you know, towel there for him to dry his hands. They're all ready. Uh, we got some angels that are, I guess they're preparing a meal back there. This one right here, this one that uh, lower left, as best I can tell, that, that angel is shucking oysters. I love oysters. That's great. I, I would, yeah. They're like, Jesus, what do you want? He says, I don't know. Oysters? I don't, think, I don't think oysters are kosher, though. Oh, no. We found an air in the painting. Um, well, so the question is, it says that angels, suddenly angels, suddenly angels came and they ministered to him. They waited on him. They served him. Was it like this? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You don't either. Somehow, though, I just, I don't know. I just don't think it was angels chucking oysters for Jesus. I mean, I don't know that there was a tablecloth. There may have been. I don't, if, if, if that's how you want to think of it, then by all means, go with Karachi on that one. The point isn't what it actually was. The point is that angels came, that help arrived, that when Jesus had gone through it, there was something from heaven there to meet him and help him. So I've talked about devils a little bit, just a little bit. Let's talk a little bit more about angels now. What are angels? Well, the simplest answer is that they are messengers from heaven. That is, they either bring something from heaven or communicate something from heaven to you. That's, in fact, the, the word, our English word angel is the anglicized version of angelos. You can hear angelos becomes angel. And angelos is the Greek word for messenger. It just means messenger. Now, maybe an angel, as we think of angels, or it may just be a messenger. You have to know by the context. For example, when John the Baptist in prison wanted to ask Jesus a question, are you the one or do we look for another? We're told that John the Baptist sent angelos to Jesus. I don't think it means that he sent angels to send. He sent messengers to Jesus. And so the word angel just means it's the common word for messenger. It's when the message is from heaven that they become an angel. When it's heavenly in origin and nature, that's what makes it an angel. So we could say that angels are how messages and help from heaven come to our life. Amen? Um... Are angels heavenly energies of grace that are generally non-material as we understand materiality, but can at times assume material presence? This is how C.S. Lewis thought about angels, and I think I agree. His basic idea was that, that angels are heavenly energies of grace that are generally non-material as we understand materiality, but at times can take on a material presence uh, this is how, how C.S. Lewis understood angels. I think he's on the right track there. Well, angels were present at the beginning and end of Jesus' ministry in very pronounced ways. I mean, they, I'm sure they were involved throughout, but we have stories. Uh, as Jesus concludes his time of fasting, and now he's ready to begin his ministry, 
Uh, some angels show up and wait on him. I mean, would you like some oysters, Jesus? I got some, we can get oysters or whatever. What do you want? So I go to Starbucks for you. What do you need? Um, so angels come in some way and minister to Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. We don't know exactly what they did, but they ministered to him. They were there, suddenly angels. And then in Jesus' greatest trial, Jesus' greatest trial wasn't the wilderness temptation. It was the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus is under such terrible pressure, because he knows it's about to go down. Judas is on his way. He has the temple police. He's going to be betrayed and arrested, and then he knows what comes next. Because he's already said, I'm going to be beaten, spit upon, crucified, put to death. And so what is the temptation? You know what the temptation is. It's, It's either flight or fight. Right? Jesus could fight. That's what his disciples wanted to do. That's what everybody that was expecting Messiah expected Messiah to do. To lead them in the great battle of liberation. So Jesus could fight, but that wasn't the will of the Father. But he has pressure. He has pressure to fight. Or he could go to the flight mode. He could just escape. Under the cover of darkness, he could just slip out of the Garden of Gethsemane. He could go live with the Essenes down by the Dead Sea and kind of come up with vague spiritualities and things like that. Become just a wisdom teacher, you know, teaching vague spirituality. That would be flight. He could have done that. But it's not the will of the Father. The will of the Father is for him to stay right there and trust. Not fight, not flight, but trust. But that's hard to do. How many of you, under, you, you know that, that fight or flight impulse comes on, and that's where stress comes from. That's what stress is. The will of the Father wasn't for that. I mean, Jesus is so stressed, he's sweating blood. So he's, he feels this fight, flight, instinct. But the will of the Father is for him to remain and to trust. And so we're told in Luke twenty-two forty-three, 43, then an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Again, we're not told how. I, I, I can only assume that something was said. I think I could almost guess what was said. It's just that it would surprise you that it would be said to Jesus. I think the angel probably said what angels always say. What is that? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God is with you. Something like that. We're not told. But an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. I like it. It doesn't say say an angel came from heaven. That's how we think of it. But it doesn't say an angel came from heaven. But an angel from heaven appeared to him. The idea is that these heavenly energies of grace are always present. They're always there. Sometimes they appear. Sometimes they materialize, but they're always there. So even when you're in the desert with devils, remember you're still surrounded by angels. That's what it says in Hebrews 12. We've come to an innumerable company of angels. Angels, how are we going to get through this? And they'll probably not say anything other than don't be afraid. 
When you're going through a hard time in the wilderness face to face with howling devils, remember two words, suddenly angels. Suddenly angels. Help is on the way. Help will come. Suddenly it'll be angels. Angels are messengers and messages from heaven that encourage you, that help you, that strengthen you. And you already know what the first message is, but sometimes you just need to hear it from somebody other than yourself. Don't be afraid. Don't underestimate the power of someone in sincerity and love that cares saying to you, don't be afraid. A heavenly energy sent by God to strengthen you in your hour of need. Now, sometimes angels are invisible and sometimes angels are visible. Sometimes angels are angels and sometimes angels are angelic people. And you can't always tell the difference because many have entertained angels unaware. Sometimes angels come to you and sometimes you get to be the angel. When I was 19 years old, I had a... I had a 1971 Toyota Corona Coupe. I love that little car. I just love that little car. A, toy, a red Toyota Corona Coupe. I paid $1,400 for it. And that's $1,971. That's, that's a lot of sack and groceries at Swanson's. I had a Toyota Corona Coupe, a little manual transmission. I just love that little car. And an L, a Ford LTD. Now, this is, this is, this is 19... Let's see, what, what year would it be? I have to do the math here. 78, thank you. I, I, I can't figure it out. How old am I? When was I born? I don't know. Okay, 1978. Thank you, Perry. Uh, a Ford LTD. This is when Ford LTDs were Ford LTDs were approximately the size of a ocean liner. I mean, they're huge. They're just these, these beasts going down the road. A Ford LTD ran a stop sign and hit me right on the driver's side. It's thrown all the way across the car. Glass shattered. Had a lot of cuts on my face. It hurt. I wasn't hurt, hurt. I mean, I did get to ride in an ambulance. It's the only time I've been in an ambulance. Only time, that's enough, don't need another one. I got to ride in an ambulance, got some stitches. I was okay, but, I, but it hurt, but not, you know, severely injured. But you don't know it. You know, you get hit like that and, and you're cut and, you, and your face bleeds a lot, so there's a lot of blood. And I did get a few stitches, you know, and, and I crawled out of the car and fell on the ground. And I was, I was hurt, I was hurting, and I was afraid. I thought I was maybe more injured than I turned out to be, you don't know. And it was, it was fall, and I was lying on the ground, and I said, somebody help me. You know, that's just what I said, somebody help me. I was laying on the still, I was just on the street. And almost immediately, a lady was there with a blanket. She put a blanket over me. 
and comforted me, spoke kind words to me, and stayed with me until the ambulance came. After, and then the other people had gathered, and I knew some of the people that were there. My dad had got there eventually. He'd heard, and he wasn't far away, and he came. He was there. And later on, I asked, I said, who was that lady with the blanket? And no one, no one knew, and no one even remembered a lady there with a blanket. That's always been a mystery to me. I thought, was it an angel? Or was it an angelic person? Or was it just in my mind? I don't know. Does it matter? No, it really doesn't. All I remember is somebody helped me, and almost immediately, a lady was there with a blanket. She put a blanket over me. And spoke kind words to me until the ambulance came. To this day, I don't know if that was real. If it was an angelic person. I, I, don't know, I don't know how. She's walking down the street with a blanket. I don't know. Because it seemed like she was right there. I, so was it, was it, you know, I don't know. Was it an angel? It was an angel. I don't know if it was an angel, angel, or an angelic person or something that was happening in the spiritual realm of my mind. I don't know, but it was an angel. In what way it was angelic to other people, I don't know. It was an angel to me. Because in that moment, I needed some help, and help was there. Suddenly, angels. Just driving down the road, bam! Crawl in the car. Somebody help me. Suddenly, angels with a blanket. Not shucking oysters. I didn't need oysters. I needed a, a blanket and a kind word. And I've told the story about the time when through a series of coincidences, I met a young man on a train in Paris and how I was able to assure him that God had heard his prayer in Notre Dame that day. Because the young man had become an atheist, but when he walked into Notre Dame, he was overwhelmed by the beauty, and he knew there was a God, and he tried to pray and said, God, I'm sorry, but he didn't think God heard him because he'd walked away from God. But because of a series of circumstances and coincidences, I was right there, and we had this conversation. I said, I just got done praying in Notre Dame, and I said, God, use me more in this city. And God said, I can answer two prayers at the same time. And I was able to talk to him and assure him God had heard his prayer and that he could find his way back to Jesus and I prayed with him and the moment I said amen I was at my stop and I said I have to go and I jumped off the train and off he went and I stood on that platform and I thought I feel like an angel I feel like an angel so sometimes the angels come to you and sometimes you get to be an angel but when you're in the wilderness with devils all around just remember suddenly angels And if nothing else, if you're in the wilderness today, if you're in the wilderness today, if nothing else, I'll be your angel. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You're going to, I got my blanket, I'm putting, don't be afraid. It's going to be, help's on the way. We've got the ambulance coming. You're going to be okay. You're going to make it. We'll go through it with you. You're not alone. I'm your angel telling you that today. Believe it, it's true. Amen and amen. Stand up with me. Oh, and today we get to baptize people. It's been a great week. I've been doing all the sacraments. I believe in sacraments. 
Christianity is a sacramental faith. It's cerebral in the, sense, in the sense that we think and we do theology, and I love that. But we also have elements. It's earthy in that sense. On Wednesday, I was imposing ashes on you. Remember that you are dust, and the dust you shall return. Yesterday at the Lenten retreat, I was anointing for healing with oil. People in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In just a moment, we're going to uh, bring out the bread and the wine and say the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. And then, and then we're going to go to the water and baptize people. So ashes, oil, bread and wine and water. Yes, Christianity is also a sacramental faith. So those of you that are about to be baptized, would you come down here and, and come down here? I think there's couple that are coming now. Yeah. Give them a big hand. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. You want to be baptized? We'll do it. All right. Uh, turn around, face me. Turn around, face me. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to confess. We're going to confess what Christians have confessed for almost 2,000 years right before their baptism. That's where this comes from. This is a creed that, which creed comes from credo, which is the Latin word I believe. And so we're going to believe this together. We're going to all confess it together. It's called the Apostles' Creed. And uh, confess with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love Him and for those who want to love Him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come, because it is the Lord who invites you. It is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here. Amen.